Here we are, September 26. It's been a couple of weeks. I needed to take a week off. I had some surgery on my nose and I had a good chunk of flesh removed because of some basal cell carcinoma. The doctor did a skin graft. It was about three quarters of an inch long by a half inch wide. And the bandage for the first week was this huge bandage. And I had a bolster, what was called a bolster stitched to my nose. And I just didn't want to go out in public. But I can now have a regular Band-Aid and the doctor says it will be about three months before it completely heals and blend in with the nose skin. So this week I'm ready to go. I'm also working on a separate talk regarding our continuing COVID protocols and response. I hope to complete this uh, separate talk in the next week. Vaccinations and vaccine passports are bringing great division in cities and families and churches. People have been walking to schools, protesting, a nurse has been punched, restaurant hosts are being yelled at and ridiculed, family members are not allowing other family members to associate with them. There is great division in society. Some people are questioning others' commitments to Jesus, even through this, on both sides of the vaccination issue. So I want to address that and I, in a loving, biblical way. Divorced parents are going to court over whether the child gets vaccinated or not. And today on the radio was a tremendous interview with the mayor of Winkler, Manitoba. Amazing what is, his community is going through. And he says the divide that is there in Winkler will take a whole generation to heal. So my talk on this topic is entitled, The Harvest is Plentiful, But the Workers Are Divided. In the midst of all this, we have to not forget what we're here for, what our mission is, what our purpose is, what we're act actually to live for and die for, and it's the gospel, and only the gospel. We are not to live and die for a, an ideology, but for Jesus and his commands to us, and that's on both sides of the spectrum. Jesus and his command to love him and love others is to what we are to live for and die for. So it's been two weeks since we last looked at 1 Peter, I want to do a little review from chapter 1 and verses 1 to 9, which we covered a couple weeks ago. One of the things we learned was Peter did not give a false impression of the reality of following Christ. This week, uh, did you notice any exaggerated messaging as you drove around or read your news? I made some comments about that last uh, sermon. There are trials and griefs that, that come our way, and they let us know, Peter says, the genuineness of our faith. You know, kind of our spiritual maturity. They let us know the shape of our faith, the fitness level of our faith. I've done competitive swimming at various times in my life. And the last time was about three years ago and 30 pounds ago, but I digress. And as we begin training for swimming the one kilometer or for sw swimming into a meet, we, we want to discover our baseline for swimming one kilometer. Then as we set our minds on the goal of a, of a competition, we have self-control and discipline. A few months later, we take another time in our one kilometer swim and hopefully it has improved and we are swimming faster. This is what trials will do for us. They are a workout and they show our spiritual baseline. And Peter says they are something to rejoice about <laughs> and not to avoid. So here we arrive today at the passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 21. I will read them and speak about them in two sections. The first is 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this beautiful salvation, 
The prophets who spoke about the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, us, when they spoke of the things that they now told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So let's dig into this, these first few verses. Right after pointing to the goal or the end result of salvation, Peter reflects on the past. When people had a view of salvation only in the future, it is a comparison of what the Old Testament prophets knew of salvation and what Peter's readers, us, are already experiencing. The ancient prophets were given insights and prophesied concerning future salvation and is described as grace that was to come. Jesus who was to come, the man full of grace and truth. Peter stresses the pre-existence of Christ by using the expression Spirit of Christ to denote how Old Testament prophets received their revelations and wrote about the prophecies that Jesus would fulfill. Although the prophets searched intently and investigated, they did not know details concerning the time or circumstances surrounding the suffering and glorification of Christ. Something similar could be said about our own vantage point. We do not know the time or the full circumstances associated with the return of Christ, but we look intently for that beautiful future grace. The prophets were shown that their insights did not serve them, but were for, for subsequent generations, including ours. Peter spotlights the privileged status of his readers, as they are the ones served by the ancient prophets, and we are the ones served. What believers have received is so magnificent that even angels who are close to God desire to get a better look into the sufferings and glorification of the Messiah. This is part of God's beautiful plan of redemption for humanity to bring us back to fullness in, in Christ. So in this passage, Peter continues to describe this salvation, concerning this salvation. He says it is a grace. It will involve suffering and glory. It's good news. That's good news. And is that which angels long to see. Eugene Peterson says it's like all the angels are clamoring in the balconies of heaven, eagerly watching the unfolding of God's great redemptive movement throughout history. And we're a part of that, that they're watching. <laughs> we say to the Old Testament prophets, prophets now, well, of course, it's obvious. how it, it, we, we are on the other side of that, of the cross, and it seems obvious to what it all meant. But we need to have that same confidence we have about the past events of the cross, have that same confidence as we look to our future glory, to have that same attitude to look forward, that kind of hope and confidence. Our second section for today is 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's God speaking. Since you call on a father who judge, judges each person's work impartially, 
live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Every follower of Jesus knows how difficult it is to live a consistently upright, holy life. Peter's exhortation to hope here has three parts. He gives us two metaphorical images, preparing the reader for the main verb here. Set your hope. That's what our action is here. His first image is captivating. Prepare your minds for action. It, translate, it translates an ancient image. This image is drawn from the ancient and still modern for some of the Middle Eastern, this form of dress in which a man's long outer skirt draped down to his ankles, obviously preventing agile and quick motions and strenuous work. The, the real language here is gird up your loins, bring the stuff up, bring your dress up. As a result, when such actions were needed, a man tucked his shirt into his belt and thus he girded himself for action. Peter applies the metaphor to mental behavior with the added words of your minds. The second image is to be totally self-controlled or disciplined or sober. This image is drawn from the all-too-realistic world of drunkenness. An intoxicated person has no control over themselves or their body. Peter's expression is metaphorical in that believers are to be totally in tune with God's plan in history, so much so that they set their hope. We set our hope on the future and we live on earth now in light of that day. Peter urges his readers to see history the way God has planned it. Though now we may suffer unjustly at the hands of evil people, someday Christ will return and justice will be fully established. As a result, Christians are to live in light of that beautiful future day of even more grace. We will have all the fullness of grace. We live by grace now. His grace gives us power. But in the next life, we will have even more grace. It says here, be holy for I am holy. Holiness describes the essence of God's nature. One that is very different from human nature. Throughout Scripture, holiness is preeminently a characteristic of God Himself. The terminology is used to signify that God is wholly other, distinct, separate from everything that He has made, and different from the gods of human imagination. It's so much more than a description of a perfect morality. And then the holiness of God's people is found only in our relationship with Him. That's where holiness comes from. And so God's people are invited to live in such a way that showcases that relationship. The Torah, the Old Testament Torah, provided instruction on how Israel was to live holy lives. Later, God sent prophets to exhort his people to live as holy, distinct people from the unbelieving nations around them. Because of their confidence in the physical return of Jesus Christ, Believers have the motivation to live upright lives now while we wait. The beleaguered Christians written about here in 1 Peter are not to focus on their opposition or their particular trials. 
Rather, they are to focus on living lives of complete devotion to Jesus Christ. Be holy like he is holy. And in order to behave in a godly fashion, to be holy, we must first be thinking in a godly fashion. That's why we need to set our minds. We need to prepare our minds for right thinking. It's for the communities of believers to have hope that is anchored in the second coming of Christ. But as we do that, we have to set our minds on that. Paul's letter to Titus gives an encouragement similar to what we find here in 1 Peter. The appearance of Christ at the second coming is a blessed hope that provides motivation for moral living. It says this in Titus, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. We can't be ignorant. There's information to know. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We are to be purified. We are holy, Titus 2, 11 to 14. This is, God is telling us he works through Jesus to form a people who are his special possession, holy, set apart in this world. Jesus will return one day. But in the meantime, his followers, us, we're to live with hopeful expectation. While waiting for Jesus to return, we are to learn by God's grace to reject sinfulness and to live upright lives. The writers of the New Testament frequently frequently offer the return of Christ or the ending of the present age as a motivation for their upright behavior. So set your mind on these things. Hope is what will sustain us in the here and now while we await our beautiful inheritance at the end of time. Then Peter gives a reminder of their prior sinful living in verse 14. You had evil desires, the evil desires you had. Peter describes the pre-Christian state of his readers as one of ignorance. They didn't know. This is similar to what Peter says in Acts 3.17 as he preaches about the crucifixion of Jesus and describes the unconverted state of Jewish leaders. He says, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, ignorant in the sense of not having the information. But the grace of God, Jesus, gives us this information. It teaches us. It teaches us how to be a follower of Jesus, to be changed from the inside out and from ignorance to enlightenment. So this is what drives conversion. This is what drives transformation. It's fresh insight, spiritual information, good teaching. Insight is enlightenment and conversion to Christian faith, and it involves a better, new understanding of God and an understanding of who we are. So holiness, though, cannot just be reduced to separation or difference. There's a deeper level here. Holiness means devoted. God's devotion is to us, and our devotion is to Him. This is holy devotion. It leads to a separation and distinction that is just beautiful that we are connected to God. God does not just possess holiness. He is holy. Consequently, God acts in ways consistent with his character. His deeds are holy because he is holy, and we'll learn his judgment will be perfect because he is holy. James Bryan Smith, in his thoughtful book, The Good and Beautiful God, writes this. The essence of God is holiness. Holiness is the divine attribute. God is pure. There is no sin, evil, or darkness in God. 
So rather than defining holiness by listing all that God does, which is an impossible task, it's better to step back and consider the big picture. God does what is consistent with his nature. Conversely, we humans do what is consistent with our own nature. We sin. Therefore, in order for human beings to be holy, we need this new nature to participate in the divine nature. Peter talked about that in 2 Peter. Just as God's holiness is more than the sum of his actions, holiness for us does not consist merely of a list of do's and don'ts. It's about being distinct from the broader society. It's a result of having a new nature, and this new nature is one of love and goodness and obedience to God, fruit of the Spirit. This new nature comes from God, as Peter has already explained. In his great mercy, he has given us, what? New birth into what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then, verses 17 to 21, we're told that a part of this transformation to holiness is to live in reverent fear. The flow of thought here, again, emphasizes the foundation of ethics, the way we should behave. Peter begins with the foundation for living in the fear of God, and then he tells his readers to live that way. And finally, he reflects again on the foundation for living in that fear, this time as it relates to their redemption, which is the work of Jesus on the cross to bring him into relationship with God. If this God is altogether holy, it follows that this God must judge if he is to allow anyone in his presence. He cannot tolerate any sin, for sin is repulsive to his holiness. The God of the Bible is the judge of all, who, does not, who judges impartially. Knowing that God is judge and that he judges with absolute fairness drives us to live in a healthy fear and awe of him. This fear is neither dread nor anxiety. Rather, it is the healthy response of a human being before an altogether different kind of being. God is different than us. And it is a sign of spiritual health and gratitude to live this way, to have this attitude. This holy judge we now call Father. Beautiful. A term indicating intimacy and love, but also respect and submission. Jesus taught him to say, Our Father. Are, who art in heaven. But we not, must not let this familiarity with God degrade his holiness, for God and his judgment is just. He is not the big guy in the sky. <laughs> to this fear of the judge, Peter adds a second motive for a life of obedience, the nature of redemption, what actually happened when Christ was on the cross. The former life is addressed here as an empty way of life, handed down to you from your father, forefathers. What had been considered important tradition was now considered empty. From this former life, believers have been redeemed, that is, purchased with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ, been taken out of that life into a new life, transferred from darkness to light. In contrast to the old ways of ignorance, the apostle pushes his readers towards a state of readiness. That was verse 13. What Christians know should have an impact on what they do, think, then do. Christians are not to govern their lives according to previous patterns. They are no longer to conform to evil desires. Peter does not elaborate on the nature of the evil desires that these believers once had, but he will do so later in this letter. We'll get to that in chapters 2 and 4. This new holy life is made possible only made possible by the sacrificial death of Christ. 
So Peter does not merely present Christ's death as a motivation for holy living. It's the basis, the very basis for it. The New Testament writers recognize that even though believers have already received the Spirit of God and may already be saints or sanctified, set apart towards holiness, the reality is that we still struggle to do the right thing. Consequently, the Bible is full of commands and reminders for all disciples to be more like Jesus, to practice self-denial, to follow His Word, live by His Word. Believers throughout time are urged to act like what they are declared to be. Children of God, you are a child of obedience. On a practical level, holiness means conforming to the ways of God rather than the ways of the prevailing culture around us. The culture of the first century was decadent. For example, consider the list of sins found in 1 Peter 4, 3. We'll talk more about this when we get there. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. There are similar lists of vices found throughout the New Testament, in Paul's letters especially to the Galatians and to the Colossians. Christians are treated as unwelcomed immigrants because their very testimony puts them out of sync with the prevailing culture. The Christian strives to live a life of holiness in nonconformity to evil actions and attitudes, along with conformity to the life of Jesus. He urged his readers to have a sober mindset. When they approach God with awe and respect, that's what they, what they are doing is recognizing him as holy. He is holy. We need to have an appropriate distance from sinful worldly behaviors and move ourselves towards holy living. We cannot calculate our level of holiness by what or whom we avoid, a do's and a don't list. It is, holiness is not about avoiding certain people so as not to be tainted by their actions or avoiding certain actions that might be considered sinful. That will be a result of the holiness in us. Remember, Jesus was called a sinner because why? He touched and hung out with certain people that the Jewish leaders thought were unclean. So it's not just a matter of who you hang out with. Jesus hung out with sinful people and he was considered clean and perfect. Holiness means a change in our heart, our heart and our mind, which leads to upright behavior. The life of God's people reflects God's heart and our actions should spring from hearts that are in sync with his heart. Even in the Old Testament, we see that God was much more interested in the state of his people's hearts more than the religious behaviors and rituals and do's and don'ts. Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Not all this sacrifice which is listed in the context. But what does the Lord require of you? What does holiness look like? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Yet we must take care to avoid going to an extreme. It's not a the Christian life isn't a system of anything goes now because we're forgiven. Christians must first and foremost separate from the world's system in terms of perspective and attitude, its values. The result may be that certain actions and associations are avoided. Well, that will, but that will be as a consequence of our new nature, not because we think those things will make us more holy. Not merely because the action in and of itself is wrong or the association in question is too sinful. Our, our new nature will move us in new directions. We're not the first generation of believers to struggle with living holy lives in the midst of an often decadent society. It's been going on for generations. 
Here's an idea. What if I was to advertise a sermon for next week called this? The person in this church who gives me the most trouble. <laughs> Would you come early to get a good seat? Would you bring your friends? Who is this person that gives Pastor Gary the most trouble? This could be exciting. So here, here it is. The person in this church who gives me the most trouble is me. <laughs> me. Romans 7, 14, 25 describes it this way. And this is me. This is you. I do not understand what I do sometimes. What I do, I don't want to do. And what I do do, I hate. <laughs> Who will rescue me? Who will redeem me? Who will liberate me from the tentacles of sin? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what Peter is getting at. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection totally is connected to how we live now in holiness. I give myself the most trouble when it comes to living the way described in these scriptures. And ultimately, this is the most important thing in the Christian life, to be holy as God is holy. People can criticize us and insult us, but what really counts to my trials and my pain and my grief is my reaction. And for my reaction to be holy as he is holy, to be just like Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, it says, Jesus did not retaliate. He did, made no threats. Ladies and gentlemen, this is holiness. Sometimes doing absolutely nothing is the epitome of holiness. It's going after God, not anything else. I need these scriptures. I need to live these scriptures, and so do you. The Holy Spirit will help us develop new appetites so that we can separate from sinful habits of the past and move towards a life of holiness. That separation starts in our minds as we have discipline, we exercise sober judgment and have a respectful attitude toward God. That's the conclusion here. Right behavior follows right thinking. We will make conscious choices to separate from those things that would drag us down and not lift us up. You know what they are in your life. You know what's bringing you down. You know what sin you are easily entangled in. And because the riches and benefits of this salvation are so great, Peter says in response, we must, we must have a few things that we do here in this context. And I quote Dr. Ann Epi Thacker on this. We need to prepare our minds for action. What does it mean to prepare your minds? It means to be proactive, not just reactive as you wander through the culture. You are, you are, you've done some preparation. Number two, be self-controlled. Discipline yourselves. Again, there's the inference that substantial effort is required on our part. We must literally practice, train ourselves to obey a set of rules of conduct. Discipline, train yourselves to be godly, Paul said. Number three, we need to set all our hope on the grace of Christ. Set literally means to bring our lives into a specific state of being, place, or position. Stand there. Here I stand. We are to orient ourselves, position our lives in such a way that reflects our hopes are not resting on anything or anyone else on this earth, but Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Number four. This all requires us to be conformed or shaped or influenced or molded by our hope in Christ. And this salvation he extends to us, this wonderful salvation. Number five, why? Why should we be like this? Because we will all one day need to give an account to God 
for what we have done with this salvation, this costly grace extended to us in Christ. Therefore, who we are, what we do, matters. Tremendous application here. I hope you can come join us next week in person if you can. We're going to be celebrating communion. We'll be digging into what it means that the the blood of Christ has redeemed us as we participate in remembrance of the bread, the body of Christ, the cup, and the blood of Christ. We'll be looking at this beautiful idea that Jesus rescues us. He saves us. And from that, we not only have the assurance, the inheritance, but we have his nature in us today so that we can be holy just as he is holy. See you next week.